Welcome to the Open Door Church podcast. The following recording is from our Sunday morning gathering. Our prayer is that you will be encountered and encouraged by the Holy Spirit and challenged by the word of the Lord. May the Lord bless you and stir faith as you listen to this week's message. For those of you just joining us this week, we've been walking through the letter of 1 Corinthians. It's this letter that Paul wrote to the first century church in Corinth, a church that he planted, right? It's a church that uh, uh, was really close to Paul's heart. It was a ministry that was really close to Paul because he planted it. Um, but it was also a church plagued with problems. And first and second Corinthians kind of gives us some insight into the strife and the issues that this church was dealing with um, and Paul writes it as a spiritual father. It's a loving letter that comes to uh, this church. It's a letter of correction um, that comes from Paul as a spiritual father. And essentially in this letter, he answers the question, what does it mean to live like a Christian? Because it's helpful for us to remember this, that this was a first generation church. The church in Corinth was made up of Christians that had never done this thing before. There wasn't like a model example that went before them kind of outlying, uh, outlining what it looked like to live like they were saved. It's, it's relatively new stuff. And Paul is writing this letter to bring correction to the issues that have arisen in this church plant, in this kind of startup new thing that God is doing. They're still kind of figuring out what it looks like to follow Jesus, and Paul has to bring some correction. And so um, our goal this morning, and I'm going to try to do it with the best of my ability and the enabling of the Holy Spirit, is to make it through the entirety of 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Um, And I say that because we're not going to have time to stop on every verse and elaborate on every little thing that Paul references here in chapter 4. That's not the goal of this morning, but uh, the overall theme of this chapter uh, really has to do with how we regard those in positions of spiritual authority. And I think this is helpful. I think it's important. Um, and I think uh, we really need to, to grasp what Paul is getting at here. And uh, I think it's important to note Uh, There are certain letters of Paul, certain epistles, books of the Bible um, that were written under the banner of like universal theological truth. I think of books like Romans and books like Ephesians that have a a very broad audience that is universally applicable to to the church in general. Um, And I'm not saying that the book of 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians isn't applicable to us. But it's important as we're reading its words to remember that Paul is addressing a very particular set of problems. He's addressing a very particular church in a very particular setting. And so while there's truth in it that is applicable to us, if we don't first understand the context of who Paul was writing to, I do not believe that we can uh, practically Uh, bring out that application for our lives here and now. Does that make sense? I I say that because I want to be cautious because not everything that is applicable to the first century church in Corinth is uh, a verbatim um, copy of how it would apply to our lives today. And so the truth behind it is, but that doesn't mean every little detail of what Paul is saying carries over in the same context. Does that make sense? So I'm going to do my best to highlight particular historical context um, to where we get the truth of what Paul is saying and get a practical way for us to apply it to our life here today. Amen? That's, that's the goal, and that's where we're going. Um, so when we read First and Second Corinthians, um, I want us to be reminded that these were, this was a real letter written to address real problems But that truth still applies to us today, even if the problems aren't identical. Got it? Cool. Um, I updated my computer, and now my notes don't want to scroll. Isn't that fun? And so I want to look at some of those specifics. 
um, because there, there were specific contexts, specific problems that they were facing. Um, this would be a great time for me to encourage you, if you're jumping on board with us, if you haven't been able to follow along over the last number of weeks with our teaching, um, we do have a podcast that's on uh, iTunes, or I guess iTunes isn't a thing anymore, it's Apple Music, <laughs> Apple Podcasts. We have it on our website and Spotify and all those different places where we walk through these first few chapters of 1 Corinthians. And uh, this morning kind of serves as a culmination to a number of issues that Paul kind of brings up in the first three chapters. Um, he, begins, uh, he begins addressing the Corinthian church back in chapter 1 and brings to light this division that has risen up within the body of Christ, where people are saying, I'm of Paul, I'm Apollo, I am of Apollos, I am of Peter, and people are saying, I'm of Jesus. And, and there's conflict that has arisen in this church plant where uh, the church has grown divided and they're kind of broken up into different factions and they're basing their identity on a spiritual teacher or a spiritual leader and they're, they're, they're breaking up the body of Christ. And Paul is brokenhearted about this. And he begins to address it back in chapter 1. And he brings it full circle. And this is kind of like the culminating point in chapter 4. Where everything that he's talked about. The wisdom of this world. The foolishness of this age. And he brings it to not necessarily a close. But to a very sharp point here in chapter 4 before he goes on to the rest of the letter where he addresses very specific issues and gives us biblical counsel on them. And so it's important to know that the Corinthian church prided themselves in their kind of self-described wisdom. They considered themselves highly blessed, highly favored, um, especially over others because they were experiencing prosperity. They were experiencing growth. They were experiencing the working of the Holy Spirit and seeing miracles. And so they wore that kind of as a, as a crown of success. And they had a, a, a false sense of success um, that Paul is actually calling out as immaturity. He's saying that you can't be mature if you're divided. And he, he really brings about this... Uh, um, letter of correction in, in, in kind of trying to get the Corinthians to think about themselves rightly. Um, but Paul is quick to address their lack of unity as a mark of immaturity. He's grieved by the reports of quarreling and strife, and he ultimately culminates his response uh, regarding this disunity, these factions here in chapter 4. And uh, I'm going to read it in its entirety. This is something I typically don't do on a Sunday morning when I'm preaching. But uh, I am going to read this entire chapter, so bear with me. I, if you guys want to follow along on the screen or if you want to follow along in your Bible, um, I would encourage you to do so. And then we're going to come back to it and highlight a few key points. And I'm, I'm excited for what God's going to do today. And so let's read here. Beginning in verse 1, it says, Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I know of nothing against myself, yet I am not justified this, but he who judges me is the Lord. Therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will both Bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts. Then each one's praise will come from God. Now these things, brethren, I've figuratively transferred to myself and Apollos for your sakes, that you may learn in us not to think beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up on behalf of one against the other. For who makes you differ from another? And what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? You are already full. You are already rich. You have reigned as kings without us. And indeed, I could wish you did reign, that we also might reign with you. For I think that God has displayed us, the apostles, last as men condemned to death. For we have been made a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, 
yet you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, and we are dishonored. To the present hour, we both hunger and thirst, and we are poorly clothed and beaten and homeless. And we labor without our own, we, and we labor working with our own hands, being reviled, we bless. Being persecuted, we endure. Being defamed, we entreat. We have been made as the filth of the world, the offscoring of all things until now. I did not write these things to shame you, but as my beloved children, I warn you. For though you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I have begotten you through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you, imitate me. For this reason, I have sent Timothy to you, who is my beloved and faithful son in the Lord, who will remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach everywhere in every church. Now, some are puffed up as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you shortly if the Lord wills. And I will know not the word of those who are puffed up, but the power. For the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. What do you want? Shall I come to you with a rod or in love and a spirit of gentleness? Lord, thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that it is alive and that it is active and there is truth for us today. I ask that you would speak to us, each and every one, that it would come alive to us, Father, and that we would glorify you by responding correctly to what you've written and what you've said. We love you and we thank you and we welcome you here in this house. In Jesus' name, amen. Friends, how we regard legitimate spiritual authority is imperative to us growing in maturity as well as unity, which we understand um, from Ephesians chapter 4 to be the goal of ministry. I want to read Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 13. We've been coming back to this. He says, So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. And we've, been, we've done teaching on this over the last number of weeks where we see unity and we see maturity being so closely connected, and that is the result of ministry. Um, and so I'm really excited about that. But I, I need to make it clear here. Some of the least mature people I know, when I think about spiritual maturity, um, they all happen to have one thing in common, and they think that they're very mature. I don't know if anybody's ever encountered this with someone, but it, it tends to be a problem that I continually uh, kind of come into. They have this idea that they're the most spiritually advanced, and they're, they're kind of the top tier, and they've already arrived when, it's come, when it comes to their journey with Jesus, that they've, they've almost finished the race, if you will, and they don't have anything to learn from anybody else, but they have everything to offer. Has anybody met somebody like this? Where they, they're not teachable. And this is, this is a great point of frustration for me as a pastor because uh, I, I have to love people. <laughs> it's kind of a requirement of my job. Jesus kind of said I have to do it. Um, but it becomes difficult when I meet with people that already have all the answers. And I get it. I'm young. I, I haven't walked with Jesus uh, as long as everybody else in this room. Um, but I think this is why Paul would encourage and instruct Timothy not to let people despise you because of your age and your youth. In fact, uh, I don't know how many times I've had conversations with, with particularly older gentlemen that have sat in my office or sat across from me where we've argued about the scriptures or we've argued about something or I've pointed something out in their life that needs to change and needs to, needs to be addressed. And it's always awkward for me because of my age, if I'm just being honest. <laughs> but it has to come to a place where we need to be teachable. And I would encourage you, if you want to advance in this life, <laughs> if you want to be used by God, I think a spirit of humility and an open heart to correction is so imperative for us to actually be used by God. No one likes to know it all, right? <laughs> 
I, does anybody have a friend that just knows it all? Somebody's about, yeah, that's you, Nate. Uh, <laughs> I, I think I used to carry a certain air of arrogance about me, but one thing has been made abundantly clear as I've walked with Jesus for more years and more years and more years is that I don't know nearly as much as I thought I did. And I feel like I know less in comparison to where I've been than what I should, and I realize this sentence isn't making sense. Um, This is a prime example of me not knowing everything. (laughs) Does that make sense, guys? I just said it didn't make sense, and you agreed with me when I said, does it make sense? So thank you for somehow connecting with what I am trying to say. And so um, I just I have this air of concern about, uh, about people that are not able to receive correction, not able to receive, um, to, 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 to come under the notion that they're not the most spiritually advanced people in the room. Um, I think it does us well for us to recognize that we're all growing, that we never fully arrive. And if you get to a place where you're comfortable with your walk with Jesus, that's where I'd begin to ask the Lord to stir you. I'd begin to ask the Lord to, to move you from complacency because there's always room for us to grow closer. There's always room for us to know him a little bit better. And there's always room for us to learn from something from someone else. Even if they're younger than you, even if they've only been following Jesus for a number of years. Man, Lucas, man, I can pick on you every sermon, it feels like, these last couple weeks. But, man, just in Deeper Project, like the last three weeks, you have brought things to my attention that I have not seen in the scriptures the entirety of my walk with Jesus. And you've been, like, seriously following God for, like, a couple months now. (laughs) And it's blowing my mind how God is using you to even bring correction and teach me, and it's awesome. And that's where we need to realize that we need one another. If the only person you're ever learning from in the body of Christ is behind a pulpit, you're doing it wrong. Does that make sense? Like, we need each other when it comes uh, to, to just learning. <laughs> okay. Got it. Did I say what I was supposed to say there? I think I did. Um, So that leads us to the question, how should we regard those in spiritual authority? How should we regard pastors? How should we regard those that have um, some sort of leadership or some sort of authority when it comes to spirituality? Because um, how many of you guys have watched like Netflix documentaries recently about churches that have imploded and ministries that have just been exposed because there was leadership in place that was abusing their, their roles and that was abusing their God-given gifts and their talents and manipulating people and all this crazy stuff. There's a scandal, it feels like, every other week. Maybe every week, maybe every other day, I don't know. Um, from, from these ministries where people have been left unchecked, right? So it really is an important question for us to ask is how should we regard spiritual leaders? How should we regard spiritual Authority, because I warned last week the dangers of putting people up on a pedestal that have no business being there, right? We kind of looked at that in chapter 3, that, that there is this, there's this rebuke that comes from Paul, not to Apollos, not to Peter, but actually comes to the Corinthian church for falsely um, idolizing these particular leaders. And this is, goes on to what he addresses here in chapter 4, that it's not okay for us to put man up on a pedestal that belongs only to Jesus. Because men of God will ultimately let you down. I'm going to let you down. I've probably let you down more in the last five or ten minutes than I should. (laughs) I'm probably going to continue to do that. It's not my aim. I'm not trying to. But at the end of the day, uh, it's probably going to happen. But Jesus will never fail you. And he's never going to let you down. As much as I grow discouraged when I see a a particular minister fall or fail, or there's a new documentary that comes out about a church that was actually behind the scenes, pretty sketchy, all this different stuff, it it doesn't discourage me to the point of despair because my faith has never been in an organization or in a person. My trust has been alone in the person of Jesus. And as often as people will let me down, he has never. 
and he's not going to. He may disappoint me because I don't have priorities right, but he is not going to retract his word. He is not going to go back on who he said he is, and his character is unchanging. And in that, I can place my trust and build something. And so we have to understand, like, where do we, where do we regard spiritual leaders? How do we do it correctly? Um, I think it's important that we do recognize genuine spiritual authority. And we regard those in it with honor, and I'm going to say this cautiously, obedience. But not blind obedience, right? Because that's how we start cults. Like if you just listen to everything I say up here and do everything I say, you're going to be doing snow dances and uh, all kinds of weird stuff. And, and, and we get off into a tutti-frutti land real quick, right? I do not have the same weight that Apostle Paul had when he spoke these words. I need you to understand this. Paul's, Paul's position is unique in church history because, I mean, he was commissioned by the Lord Jesus himself and, and was given this mandate in, in, in the first century church. I believe I'm called of God. I believe that I carry the word of God and I'm entrusted in, in a way to pastor the church of God. I believe that he has called me out and equipped me to do that for such a time as this. But I don't want to mistake that as if I'm God himself. So everything I say, friends, you need to weigh and judge according to the scriptures. You need to seek it out and you need to make sure that what I'm saying is actually true because I'll be the first to admit I have said things that are wrong from this pulpit, fully convinced that they were inspired by the Lord. I listen back to some of my sermons that I preached or, or go through my notes when I'm getting ready to preach on something and I'll read something that I preached 12 years ago and I'm like, how, where did that come from? How did I, how did I come to that conclusion? Um, maybe the Lord was putting a unique spin on it for me, but... I look at, back at it and I was like, wow, I, I think I did a poor job in handling this text and this passage of scripture. And I'm not saying that to make excuses uh, or, or, to, or to just kind of, you know, pass off the idea of, well, then it's okay. Everybody makes mistakes. I take it very seriously. But it's important that you don't look to just any man. Don't look to just any teacher and take everything that they say as 100% truth 100% of the time. It's important that we are discerning full of the Holy Spirit and weighing it against the scriptures. Does that make sense? Because when we, when we just start blindly listening and following people, it's how we get off the rails really quick. Make sense? So in this church, you always have permission to question what I say. Does that make sense? If I say something, if, it's, if you're like, yo, Pastor Nate, I don't see that in the scripture. Man, I want you to come and talk to me about it. I don't want anyone here just saying, well, Pastor Nate said it. It's got to be true. Make sense? Otherwise, you're all probably in trouble with the Lord because you don't come to Ultimate Frisbee. <laughs> so, 3 o'clock today at Yamaguchi. It's beautiful out. There's no excuse for us not to be there. Got it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Boy, do we ever. <laughs> Dustin came out two weeks ago with his cowboy boots. <laughs> he was telling us this morning about how he went and got on the tractor the next day and his legs were cursing him. <laughs> but man, was he there. <laughs> Jesus, you're good. So 1 Corinthians 1 through 2, how should we regard these people? How should we regard uh, legitimate spiritual authority? How should we, resolve, how should we regard um, people with influence in our lives? It says, this is what the Apostle Paul would say. And he's talking about himself. He's talking about Apollos here. He's talking about apostles. He's talking about teachers in the first century, leaders in the, in the first century church. He says, let a man so consider us. As servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be, be found faithful. Anyone in any kind of spiritual authority needs to realize the weight of that responsibility. I think, it's, I, I think we do an injustice to the bride and the body of Christ when we see someone with gifting when we see someone with talent and we immediately, we immediately say, well, you're called to ministry. 
I grew up in this kind of youth group culture where the, anybody that had any ounce of skill or talent, if they could speak in front of people or if they could play the guitar and sing, it was like, man, God's calling you to ministry. We need you on our team. And, and, and I think we quickly elevate people to the place of ministry without being tested, without being proved faithful, without being found to be true. And I think it's dangerous, my friend. We can't just, we can't just recognize somebody's skill set. We can't just recognize somebody's talent um, and, and kind of place a seal of approval on them. Because just because somebody can preach or if they're gifted administratively, if they can lead an organization, just because they have uh, like a strong charismatic personality, or even if they have like perfect theology, none of those exist as substitutes for faithfulness. Do you understand that? There are people that are extremely good at what they do, but it comes out that they're not faithful. And I would rather have somebody that stumbles over their words. I'd rather have somebody that maybe isn't as, as gifted in administration or maybe naturally talented and sit under that kind of teaching and that kind of person if they're proved faithful at the end of this age. That is what we're looking for when we're looking for people to speak into our lives, when we're, we're looking for, for authority to sit under. We want people that are faithful to Jesus for the long haul, not the people that just entertain, not just the people that, that, that are flashy and can put on a show, because that eventually is going to run out. And when it's proved that they're unfaithful, worlds crumble. And that's a terrifying thing. And so... I wrote this, someone can preach the house down, they can manipulate a room to tears, they can display gifting and even miracles, but the most important mark of any person in a position of spiritual authority is whether or not they've been faithful with what Jesus has given them. Can I tell you, this is refreshing and encouraging to me as a pastor because I don't need to emulate the TV preacher, I don't need to look at the bigger church down the road and strive to be like them. Uh, I, I, don't need to, I, I don't need to try to be someone I'm not because my responsibility as a leader, my responsibility in, in the bride of Christ as a pastor is to be faithful with what he entrusts me with. It's not to try to generate something that he never placed in my hands. And for me, that is extremely freeing because, one, I can't take enormous credit for what God does <laughs> with what he's given, <laughs> but I can prove to be a faithful steward with what he's entrusted me with. And it also releases me from this game of comparison where I'm trying to imitate or generate something that he never entrusted me with. This is the idea of a steward. A steward is a slave that is in a position of authority over other servants. And that is what I want to be with Christ. I want to be submitted to him. I want to be underneath his control and his leadership. But I want to, I want to do so in understanding that what I build here, what, what happens here in this ministry that my hands are actively involved in, that it's not something that I can take credit for. It's not something that I can just be like, whoa, Pastor Nate, good job, pat me on the back. I'm entrusted with what God has placed in my care. And in doing so, um, he gets the glory for it. Does that make sense? So going on into verses 3 and 4, we're going to do our best to get through this. I realize it's, it's almost 1130, but we got this. You hanging in with me? It goes on in verse 3. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I know of nothing against myself. Yet I am not justified by this, but he who judges me is the Lord. I think it's very, very much worthwhile to note here that Paul isn't concerned with what the Corinthians think of him. He's not afraid about disappointing them with his lifestyle. And I think his confidence here is rooted in the fact that he's being faithful to the Lord, not man's expectation. Paul's fear of the Lord releases himself from the fear of man. And this is something I think a lot of us would be, uh, would be good to take Paul's example here in understanding that uh, our first and foremost priority 
is to be rooted in pleasing God, not pleasing man. Because if that happens, we're released from man's expectation over our life. Because we're in confidence knowing that we're pleasing God and not being manipulated by whatever anybody else wants us to do. Does that make sense? And so I say that because it's also important that we recognize Paul's position as an apostle here is unique. I say this because you might be tempted to just say, well, yeah, I don't care what other Christians think about me. That's how I'm going to live my life. It doesn't matter what Darby thinks about me, even if he's my presbyter. Right? I am a man of God. I don't care what other people think about me. I don't care what the church thinks about me. I'm going to do me and Jesus as just a thing. This is where we see Paul's unique um, unique position as an apostle kind of come out. Because could you imagine how wild of a notion it would be if the Corinthians, as believers in Jesus, wrote back to Paul? It's like, eh, we don't really care what you think about us, Paul. You know what? Only God can judge me. If they would have written that back to Paul, like, it doesn't work in the inverse here, does it? Because Paul would be quick to remind them, like, hey, I'm your spiritual father. I love and I care about you. It very much matters what I think about you. I do have a position and I do have some weight in what's going on here. It doesn't just work on the inverse here. So I say this, it's important for us to live in the fear of the Lord, released from the fear of man. But I don't want to take this as a blind statement where we apply it to our lives, where we think it doesn't matter what other believers think about us. Because it does. The way that we present ourselves, the way that we carry ourselves, the way that the world sees us is important in certain contexts. It's not just a free-for-all for us to say, you know what, we get to do whatever we want. But I do believe when we're living in the fear of the Lord and we're rooted in what he wants from us, it releases us from that expectation of man. And so you have this mentality of, well, only God can judge me, right? How many of you guys know somebody with like an only God can judge me tattoo? Maybe don't say that. Maybe, maybe that's you, and I'm sorry for going off on this, but there's like this stigma or this kind of, uh, what's the word that I want to use? Stereotype of, uh, of these stickers that I've seen on the back of big lifted trucks and uh, tattoos of these guys on their chest, these like jacked rip steroid lifting gym bros that are all in their infliction t-shirts. And Wow, I'm getting too personal with this. Um, <laughs> with, 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 uh, with tattoos of only God can judge me. And, it, and the reality is, no, that's silly because I'm totally judging you right now, right? We're all kind of doing it. Your name's probably Kyle and you have a case of monster in the back of your truck. Wow. There, I don't know where and why I'm going off on this, but it's this idea and this mentality that only God can judge me, right? And we understand that our role as believers, yes, we're not supposed to pass judgment off on one another. That's not something that we're called to do, but we are called to discern. And elsewhere in Scripture, we are called to judge and judge appropriately on whether or not something is from God or not from God. And so this isn't a free-for-all in saying that, you know what, we don't... We don't we don't look at spiritual authority and test whether or not it's actually genuine and from God. That's not what Paul is getting at. What Paul is getting at here when he talks about this, this, uh, this judgment that comes against himself, he says, I don't even judge myself because Paul understands that he can be too harsh of a critic on himself or not harsh enough. And that needs to be left to the Lord. And we can be so easily duped into this kind of same mentality of thinking where we're way too hard on ourselves, right? We're our own worst critic or we're too easy on ourselves and we give ourselves a free pass. That's why Paul says, you know what? I, I need to be judged by the Lord. And that's where all of us need to find ourselves is not looking at man's expectation for our life, not even looking at our own expectations from ourselves, but we need to submit ourselves to the Holy Spirit and let God be the one that determines what, what we're doing is right or wrong. Does that make sense? Because we're really poor judges of ourselves. We're really poor judges of our own character. We're really poor judges of our own nature. It's important that we look to the scriptures and the Holy Spirit and let God define whether or not we're living in or out of his will. Does that make sense? Good. I'm glad you're tracking with me. So he goes on in, in verse 8 here, and, and, and he kind of, I'm skipping ahead, but verses 8 through, through like 13 here, 
Paul gives this sarcastic rebuke. And when you read it, you really begin to see when he says, you are already full, you are already rich, that's not just a truth that he's stating. That's not a promise that you want to come to the Lord with and recite over your life and be like, I am already full. I am already rich. Paul is writing this letter and it's sarcastic in nature. You'd be like, whoa, that's not okay. I didn't think that that was allowed. Paul here, as an apostle, is writing these things not to mock them, not to ridicule them. As we go on here, when in verse 14, he says, I do not write these things to shame you, but as my beloved children, I warn you. He wants to shake them. He wants to wake them up. He wants to really hit a nerve and strike something with them to get them to realize the gravity of the situation that they're in. And he begins to use sarcasm at this because he says, you're already full. You're already rich. Or the way that Pastor Nate would put it, you've already arrived. You've figured it all out. You've gotten to the end. You're spiritually mature. He says, you have reigned as kings without us. And indeed, I could wish that you did reign because then we might reign with you. He uses the sarcastic, scathing language here to point out the fact of how ridiculous the Corinthians are acting because they think that they're better than everyone else. He's using it to dismantle this, this idea of pride that has crept into the church and to the believers here. If we go on to verse 9, he says, For I think that God has displayed us, the apostles, last, as men contemned to death, for we have made a spirit. We have been made a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. And it's in contrast to this sarcastic language that, that was just used describing them as full and rich and as reigning as royalty. The apostles instead are being displayed as a humiliating spectacle to the world. The Corinthians looked at themselves really proud and haughty in this kind of high regard. And it's remarkable, Paul says, that we as the apostles, God has chosen to display so low and humiliated. How does this reconcile? And he goes on in 4.9, uh, this, this, this kind of uh, this, this language here where it talks about them being displayed as spectacles. It comes from this idea um, that, that existed with the Colosseum where where there would be a parade of Roman guards and, and the Roman military and the general would be out at, for, at, at the forefront and they would lead their armies in when they were victorious. And then following the army, they would, they would have their booty. They'd have all their loot and all, uh, all, all of, the, all of the, the, the tributes of war kind of being displayed in, in this parade going into the Colosseum. And the last would be the slaves, those that had been conquered, those that were going to be gladiators, those that were going to fight to the death in the Colosseum. They were being displayed as captives at the very end of the procession on their way condemned to death. And Paul is using this language that would have been readily uh, ingrained into the mind of the Corinthian church to saying that's who we are. We're the captives in this sense. God is using us and he's displaying us as these, as these captives, as these slaves, as this spectacle for everyone to look at, for everyone to see. It's interesting to me this, this language here in verse 9 where it talks about God displaying, Right? uses this word spectacle to indicate something of the utmost importance, and that is that Paul is saying the world is watching us. The world is paying attention to us. Do you know one of the greatest testimonies that I have found in all of, of uh, I guess, apologetic arguments that I have seen? Uh, one of the greatest truths that really kind of prove that Jesus was resurrected is that all of the apostles, all of the, the disciples, excuse me, apart from John, wind up dying for their faith, wind up dying for their testimony that Jesus was who he said he was, that he died and rose again. And if you think about it, it doesn't make any sense. At some point, if it was a fabricated lie, or if it was this kind of carefully, uh, carefully covered up kind of scheme of some kind of religious political movement, some of these guys would have broken, right? 
It doesn't make any sense for Paul to live his life running, uh, running, uh, running around, going from prison to prison to prison, living poor and detestable, uh, being homeless, being shipwrecked, being abandoned, being chased out of town, being stoned. It makes zero sense for Paul to give his life consistently to something that he knew was fabricated. In the same way, it makes zero sense for any of the, the 12 disciples to go to their deaths if they knew that Jesus was just a sham. And that, to me, friends, is mind-blowing when I begin to think about it. It really points to the validity of the claim that Jesus is who he said he is, that he is really the risen Son of God. Because none of the early church, this, this might come as a shock to you because I know ministers today don't have the best rap when it comes to the media, but nobody in the early church was making bank because they were following Jesus. Paul wasn't getting this massive paycheck. Sometimes he was taken care of. Most of the time he wasn't. He talks about him being homeless here, being destitute, being the, 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 the filth, the scum of the earth. And this is where the problem lies. Because the Corinthians prided themselves in their spirituality and their prosperity. And they connected the two. They had this mentality that because we're more spiritual, we're more favored, we're more blessed. That is why we are prosperous. And they looked at Paul and the way that he was living his life. They looked at Paul in the fact that he wasn't being financially blessed. That he wasn't experiencing this life that was free from pain and suffering and said, you know what, that must mean God's not with him. And they had this misconstrued idea of what it was to actually follow Jesus. They viewed Paul and his ministry as illegitimate, as unspiritual because he was actively suffering. They had this view that for someone to be blessed and favored, they needed a life that was free from pain and suffering. And that typically included something of monetary value and some kind of prestige in this world. And they, they, they couldn't get their heads out of this world and into the kingdom of heaven enough for them to realize that they were completely missing the point. But it's remarkably similar to a certain prosperity gospel that's propagated in evangelical circles here today. Uh, Adam and I were just talking this morning right before uh, we came up here for worship practice and how, how there's different ministers on TikTok and, and stuff saying, you know what, uh, God wants you to be blessed financially. He wants you to prosper. And in fact, the, the gospel message is one of prosperity. And as much as I want to, as I want to kind of go down this road, I, I need you to understand, we reject the prosperity gospel in almost all of its forms because we don't see this promise of following Jesus and he'll make everything easy, he'll make everything wealthy, he's going to bless you abundantly or, or in, in terms of monetary kind of gain. That is not a promise that we have from Scripture. What I do see in scripture are there are people that are blessed financially. There are people that are, that are given gain and influence in this world for the advancement of the kingdom of God. And I want to be clear here that you hear my heart. Just because you have money, just because God has, has blessed you in a sense of financial resource or, or maybe even life that is, uh, that is comfortable, Paul doesn't call that out and say that that's evil. Paul isn't saying that that's wrong or that, that, that God's not in it because God is very much 100% about those situations and, and in those people. Um, but when we make a distinction and we look at a brother or sister that is struggling, maybe financially, <laughs> maybe if we look at, if we look at, uh, let me read this because I, I, don't want to, I don't want to misconstrue this and I wrote this down. Just because someone's blessed financially, and in regards to spiritual authority and leadership, just because there's maybe a ministry that has an abundance and is large and 
is doing a lot of great things, or maybe even the pastor has nice clothes and drives a nice car or has, has a really nice house or something like that. I don't want to discredit that kind of ministry because God can certainly use it, but we can't look to it as the main sign of God's blessing and approval on someone's life. Does that make sense? Okay. I'm glad, I'm glad I eventually got there. Thank you for your patience with me. I can only imagine what kind of rebuke Paul would write to the American church. I, I'm, I'm terrified. of. I think, the, I think the letter would be longer than this whole book. Um, <laughs> but think about it. We consider a church or a ministry to be blessed and effective when the room is packed. And when I wrote this down this morning, I wasn't anticipating the room to be packed. <laughs> but I'm thankful for it. I'm glad you guys are here. We're going to need more chairs. I mean, for real, Debbie, you always sit in the back row. Neil took your spot today. We had to get another back row. I went to go take communion, and there was no bread left. I picked up a crumb. And I went back to the root back with Elliot, and it dissolved by the time I got back there. So I missed out. Um, Good problems to have. We're, we're grateful for that. But we consider a church to be blessed when the room is packed and the bank account is full and the tithe and the offering is coming in and stuff is happening. And we look at whatever kind of mega church ministry and celebrity pastor that has the book deal and the TV show and the social media following. You know, they're an influencer, if you will. They've got the, they've got the money in the bank. And we would say, wow, look how God is using them. This is how we train up ministers coming out of Bible college to, to emulate and idolize these guys that are crushing it in ministry, right? That just, they've got it figured out. They're doing it. It's obvious that God's hand is on them. And I'm not saying that God's hand isn't, but it isn't the mark that we should be looking for. What we need to be looking for is faithfulness. Because if we embrace these types of teachers, if we, if we look to, to these, kind of, these kind of pictures of what spiritual authority and, and what, what people should look like that are, that are strong teachers and being used of God, and we use these kind of metrics as our kind of measuring rod on whether or not they're legitimate or not, and we neglect the imprisoned missionary that doesn't have a social media platform. Or the church planner that is struggling just to get things to happen. Or, 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 we, or we look at the Christian who is broke financially and given everything that he has. And we say, you know what? Well, that person's obviously not blessed by God because they don't have money in the bank. And if they were really in love with Jesus and they were really following the Lord, well, God, God would bless them and they wouldn't have bills to pay. They must not have enough faith because, you know, they're struggling. I mean, how do you look at the church in, in underground nations where it's illegal for the gospel to be preached that are, that are literally struggling to meet and stay alive and say, you know what, God can't bless that because they don't got money in the bank. And they're not busting at the seams. How, how, do, how do we look at, at the church that I ministered to in, in Kenya where there were six people in the building but it was the most full of the Holy Spirit that I've ever experienced in an actual church service in a building where they didn't have a penny to their name, but they were full of the Holy Ghost and the joy of God was there. That was a mark of effective ministry. Friends, let's not grow disillusioned like the Corinthians did on what, what's of God and what's not. Because as much as I'm glad that this room is full right now, this is not the mark of success that I'm looking for on our ministry. We're looking for fruitfulness. We're looking for things that will last. We're looking for the lost to be saved. And it'd be great, man, if we had a large offering come in and we could build a bigger building and maybe one day pave the parking lot or something like that. But none of that is considered success in the eyes of God. What's considered success is whether or not we stay faithful to what he's entrusted us with. We go on here. Paul has some interesting things to say that stands in stark contrast to what the Corinthians kind of deemed successful, right? 
<laughs> he says, we are fools for Christ's sake, but you're wise in Christ. <laughs> they prided themselves in this wisdom that they had. He says, we're, we're weak, but man, boy, are you strong, guys. Oh, you're distinguished, <laughs> but we're dishonored. It's almost this, this way of Paul saying, hey, be reminded of where you came from. <laughs> this, as much as you like it or not, this is your spiritual heritage. Remember, I, I planted this church, and this isn't arrogance on Paul's part. This isn't some kind of abusive spiritual authority that he's coming with. But he reminds them, he's saying, at this present hour, we both hunger and we thirst. We're poorly clothed. We're beaten and we're homeless. And we labor working with our own hands. This was something that was just unthinkable for the Corinthians in that age. For someone to be blessed and still have to work and do something, just that didn't compute. I'm preaching this. I don't think of that for anybody in this room. Uh, I don't know of anybody here that is thinking that for me to be blessed by God means that I don't have to do anything anymore. But this is what the Corinthians were thinking. It goes on and says, being reviled, we bless. Being persecuted, we endure. Being defamed, we entreat. And we have been made as the filth of the world, the offscoring of all things until now. This offscoring was a and interesting words, and in, in the phrase in the Greek, it actually referred to what the Corinthians would know as a process of sacrificing uh, unuseful people. Um, if there was a trade ship that was sailing, and, uh, and, there was, uh, and there was a storm coming, there'd be a certain class of people that would be considered disposable. And they would throw them overboard... <laughs> before they would throw the cargo overboard because they were disposable and the cargo wasn't. And so what Paul is saying here is, I'm disposable. <laughs> we're, we're disposable. We're willing to be sacrificed um, for, for the things to come. And he says this, and I love verse 14 because he goes through this scathing rebuke, right? This very satirical, I mean, like, Pretty, pretty harsh rebuke here. And he says, I'm not writing these things to shame you. And this is where Paul's heart as a spiritual father comes through. And this is how we, this is how we determine whether or not spiritual authority is legitimate or if it's abusive. It, it, it can look the same sometimes. Correction can come and look the same sometimes on a surface level. We could have one guy tell you one thing and one guy say the exact same thing, but does it boil down to the motivation of their heart on whether or not they're actually caring about your eternal soul? I say this because I have, I have a man of God in my life that I look back onto a moment when I was 17 years old. I made some dumb decisions and I deserved... Uh, I deserve to be rebuked. I deserve to be corrected. And I was a punk. And I remember being in my garage thinking that I was entitled, that I was more spiritual, that I was right, that I had figured everything out. My pastor, my youth pastor, his name's Pastor Josh. He used to be a pastor here. Uh, called me and told me that I was being an idiot. <laughs> and he wasn't, he was a lot like Paul here. He wasn't very kind in the things that he said in that moment. But can I tell you, I listened to him. And I remember that hour-long conversation where he went off on me. And I remember being broken to the place of tears because there was a man that cared enough about me to tell me when I was wrong. We read on here that they have a lot of teachers, but they don't have many fathers. And friends... What makes a spiritual father a spiritual father to us and places someone in legitimate authority over us is whether or not they actually care about us or they care about themselves. And there is unfortunately far too many ministers, I'll use that term lightly, and there's ministries out there that prey on people that do not care about you one iota. And... The difference is when someone rebukes us and brings correction to us because they care, because they're a loving father and they don't want to shame us, it changes everything. 
I look back at how I responded to that rebuke that I received when I was 17 years old. And I remember being broken to tears because it was the first time uh, that I had a man in my life tell me that I was wrong and actually bring correction to me. Um, I, didn't, I didn't have a great home life or a great father figure growing up. And I'm just grateful for that because as we get into what's next here in chapter five, as we go throughout the rest of this letter, Paul writes some things that are, that are somewhat harsh, if you will. If you were just to take and be like, oh, Paul, why are you being kind of mean here? Can't you be a little more gentle? Can't you just be, can't you kind of sugarcoat things a, a little bit easier for us to digest? But the role of a spiritual father is not one to where you are comfortable my role as a father to my kids is not to ensure that they're comfortable and to ensure that their life is easy. My role as a father to them is to raise them up to where they're successful, where they're, they're self I don't want to say self-sufficient, but <laughs> where they're sufficient. <laughs> they learn how to lean and trust on the Lord in the same way that this is Paul's desire for the Corinthian church. He says, I want you to be mature. I want you to be spiritually capable. I want the best from you. And in order to do that, there is correction that has to come. And the way that he encourages that is in verse 16. He says this, Therefore I urge you, imitate me. That's crazy. Paul has just described how he has been at the bottom of the barrel, that he is, he is the scum of the earth, the filth of the world. Everything that the Corinthians prized themselves in, Paul was living in the opposite. And he says, imitate me. And the Corinthians had to just balk at that, say, "What imitate you? You don't even have a house. Like, what am I supposed to do? You work with your hands making tents, Paul. You expect me to, 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 to mess up this manicure? That's a manicure's fingernails, right? I, I don't know. I've never, I, I, don't, I don't get those. Uh, I probably should. I probably should like, get my wife a manicure, pedicure, whatever those things are. But you guys get what I'm saying here. He, he charges them with this. He says, I urge you, imitate me. Follow me. That's crazy to think about. Now, what Paul isn't saying here is that everyone needs to live like him. He's not expecting for you to be saved, for you to be all right with God, that you live destitute, that you live without a penny to your name, that you're homeless, that, that, you're, that you're the filth of the earth here. <laughs> but what he does expect from us and the truth that we can apply is the fact that we should be willing to. Because Paul doesn't just rebuke people that have a lot of money and that are good because he recognizes later there are people that are blessing the church and the work of the ministry that, are, that, are, that have been blessed. But if we were to, to kind of take the overall theme of this, what we can't do is look at someone's life or someone's ministry and determine whether or not they are being blessed and used by God based upon the success or lack of suffering in their life. And we can't look to other believers, and we certainly can't look to ministers, we can't look to pastors and determine whether or not they're legitimately uh, spiritual authority in our life based simply upon whether or not they have successful ministries or they've got credit or clout. Because what God looks at in terms of success is wildly different than the metrics of this age. He's looking for faithful stewards. And that's what we strive to be. And so when I, I say all this, I may not have given you a checklist or a bunch of points on how to determine on whether or not somebody is legitimately in spiritual authority. Can I say this? There are spiritual fathers that need to rise up in the house of God and that are willing to maybe step on some toes because they care enough about a future generation so they don't have to learn from their mistakes. The conversation that I had with Pastor Josh when I was 17 years old, there is a group of modern progressive Christians that would say that that was spiritual abuse. 
And they would probably plaster it on the internet and make a podcast out about it and say how that man was wrong for telling me that I was wrong as a 17-year-old kid and that I was a punk and I needed to grow up. But can I be honest with you? Uh, not all spiritual fathers, when they bring correction, will it be spiritual abuse. Let's not, be, let's not throw that term around. Because a spiritual father is going to want what's best for you. In the same way, I spank my kids. Call CPH or whatever you want. <laughs> I spank my kids to bring discipline and correction to them. I'm not beating my kids because I want to hurt them. I don't beat my kids because, you know, they're like, oh, yeah, I'm just an angry father looking to, to bring things out on them. But I'm disciplining them because I want them to be better. And I want what's best for them. And so now I'm going to hear everybody's opinion on parenting in an email. But the heartbeat of a legitimate spiritual father is going to be one that wants your success. Thank you for listening to this week's message. If you want to find more of our messages, get connected with our church, or partner with us financially, you can find us at opendoorpagosa.com. Thanks again, and have a blessed week.